SeedPod is supported by Gifted, a boutique gifting agency who create gifts for hospitality, corporates and events. The Gifted team support local artisans by sourcing local products where possible. For Gifted, ideal gifts are sustainable, ethical, natural and organic. Gifted offer a wide range of services from concept, design and sourcing to packaging and delivery, making the often undesirable task of looking for gifts easy. They make you look good. To find out more, please visit www.giftedforyou.co.za. SeedPod is recorded and produced at Catalyst Studios in Cape Town. Catalyst is a state-of-the-art recording and production studio that produces audio content of the highest quality. Their studio has housed local and international recording and voiceover artists. Gideon and his team have produced audio content for commercials, film and television broadcasts, as well as podcasts. If you'd like to book the studio or inquire further, you can visit catalyst.ca.za. That's catalyst spelt with a K. What is the pragmatic thing to do for us as as human beings to say, we have to think differently about this? Because the way that we've been thinking ain't serving the purpose anymore. Mm -mm. And connect with our planet that we live on and realize that, that we are part of it and we are part of an ecosystem we're not separate from it and so something whether it's a person or the planet i'm damaging myself because i'm part of it hi i'm lee rail and you're listening to seed pod a podcast dedicated to the people shaping south africa through entrepreneurship sustainability and design before we get started please rate us on itunes and share this with your friends it really helps us a lot today i sit down with quite a fascinating guest andres rosenbach He's not very well known in, in the public sphere, but Andres started off his career as an engineer at Sassel, and he was responsible for Sassel's strategy. And we go into petrochemicals a bit, and we go into the impacts those have and the realization around the fact that we need to shift away from them. And Andres's new path in life around uh, circular economy specifically and the role that has to play in, in the shift that we need to make to avoid catastrophic climate change and the overarching conversations around how it all stems from the single human being and from the internal that all these decisions we need to make the changes we need to make need to start off from the inside and not from the outside and how does one cultivate that that knowing from inside and that experience from the inside and how does one um, create a whole human being. It was a thoroughly uh, enjoyable conversation. We, I could have kept going for a couple hours, uh, but Andres had, a, had to go. And uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll have him back because there's a lot more to talk about. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the studio, Andres. Um, today is the first time we're doing two in one go. So, um, not one go, but back to back. So, excuse me if I'm nodding off. No, I'm joking. Um, so, you just landed in Cape Town. You're from Johannesburg. We haven't... We, our first conversation was yesterday. So, <laughs> um, this is just... This is a... This is very much a um, I don't know where it's going conversation, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, so so l- let's let's start in the beginning. Um, your your name is Andres Rotenbach. 
you have a strong Afrikaans accent. You clearly are South African. I don't need to ask where you're from. Uh, how do you feel about being South African in today's in today's world? Lee, um, let me firstly say, well, thanks for the opportunity. It's uh, I know I've landed and we've rushed in, but it's it's an opportunity to to have a chat uh, with you and see the see the conversation as an uh, as an adventure mm. i mean sometimes when it's not planned it's actually that's the excitement uh, of it uh, to to answer your your, your question um, i have to tell you a bit about my history so i've been um, working for a large corporate in south africa for 32 odd years uh, let me say two, so it's kind of 26 and and five. Are you allowed to say which corporates? Uh, I, I suppose, yes. Um, I worked for Sassel, um, so a senior uh, person in, in the company. And then previously, you might recall, it was a company called ISCO, Iron and Steel Company of South Africa. That's where I really, really started off. But in my, in my corporate career, I had about a 13 to 15 year stint where as a project director, program director, um, I had the privilege to travel the globe and work in many, many, many a country. In fact, build plants across the globe, negotiate deals, do a lot of stuff. And people many times ask me, well, why am I in South Africa? Because I want to be here. Because it's, I'm proud to be a South African, firstly. Secondly, it's a an amazingly beautiful country to be in. Uh, are there other countries that are beautiful? Yes, they are. But to, to be with your people, um, which is firstly us as an Afrikaans-speaking person, secondly, the, the culture and the, the hospitality of South Africa, um, we don't always appreciate it. Uh, and when you travel and when people come to South Africa, they say, wow. So it's by choice that, I, that I'm actually here. Um, and I've been asked the question many a time, why don't, why don't you integrate? Because I don't want to. And I really enjoy. And I also think we've got work to do to, to affect change and be some of the change in the country. Hmm. That answers the question. Okay. Um, so you, where were you born? Where were you? Where's your family from? Yeah, my, my, my origins is from Rustenburg, the old Transvaal. Um, I obviously was born there. Then my I grew up in Johannesburg. Uh, not grew up, I think my primary schooling was there. And then my parents um, relocated to Durban. So then I actually became a bit of a banana boy. And I did my matriculation there. So I think about from standard two, I think they call it grade four now, whatever, um, to, to matric. I was then in Durban, and then I came back because I had to study, and I studied at uh, Pretoria University. So uh, that's where my origins are. I'm kind of born and bred in, in the old uh, Transvaal or Gauteng, mm. um, to, to, to call it mm. in, the, in the modern day terms. But you spent a good time... Good. What made your family move down to Durban? Uh, business. Okay. Uh, business issues. So my father moved down there, and then obviously we uh, we we followed. The was your father? Did he run his own business? Was he an entrepreneur? Or yes, my father was also technical of of nature, um, and a heavy musical slant in him. Um, so he then got involved in classical instruments, which um, uh, I then also got educated in, in, in the classical sense. So they, they, there was a business that they had to run there. So, but it was civil, technical work that he that he did. Okay, engineer. 
he wasn't a t an engineer. He was a, I don't know if he was a technician or whatever, but he was a civil constructor. Okay. Okay. So I formally became the engineer, but he, he was he was kind of, he led the way in, in, in that sense. Okay. And your mom, what was, what was she doing? My mom was the, um, well, yeah, she's now retired. Uh, my mom was a, as a secretary, executive secretary or personal assistant. And she um, was the personal assistant for the regional director of Eskom in Natal, KwaZulu Natal, um, until she retired. Must have been a very interesting role. <laughs> yes. So she's got many stories to tell mm. and many, many, many tears to shed about uh, sometimes what's happening with Eskom at the moment. Mm. You know, from where it was, and I suppose where the, the situation they're finding themselves mm. in at the moment. So, do do you have a like an insight as to any insights that the general public might not have around Eskom and where they are now? Um, my just to sum up my knowledge of it is that they're in major financial trouble, um, and there are a number of plants that they've spent billions of rands on, which aren't even online yet, and so they have infrastructure issues. And yeah, I, I, as a country, we're facing a potential crisis there. That, that's. I, I don't think it's a potential crisis. It, it is a crisis, if I if I may speak as an engineer as well, uh, because the principle is that once you build. You have to maintain and plan ahead. Now, I, I'm not close enough to say, you know, what they've been doing uh, or not been doing. I think that's the other the other side of it. But one of my mentors was also uh, one of the directors of, of ESCOM at the time. Um, and, in fact, he had a major impact on my life and, in fact, the work I'm trying to get done now, which is on the personal mastery side. Mm. So, no, no particular inside track in, in on ESCOM other than sound kind of common sense financial planning uh, which is, is, is not unique to, to Eskom. It's just business that mm. you actually have to run and be systematic about it and have your controls in place. I think the one thing that does bother me sometimes, especially because I have to acknowledge what uh, the way that Cecil did it is, the immense controls and the, the, uh, the control what I mean over financial, you know, how you, how you manage your money, you know, and how people sign off on it. So I sometimes... I kind of get a bit, a bit disappointed that those controls are failing because in, in big corporates, it's a, it's a major issue. Mm. I mean, you don't work with 10 rand. You work with millions of, mm. of rands, literally. So the, But no, no particular uh, okay. in, insight. Mm. Uh, I just think there's a lot of work to be done uh, with ESCOM to make sure that you get the continuity and stability that we, that we really need. Mm. But well, what, hopefully I'm saying, what I'm saying is everybody knows mm. it's, it's, it's not rocket science. That's the, that's the bother. Hopefully, hopefully they can... I, I know the president's put a task force together and hopefully they can sort it out. Yeah, look, I, 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 from my perspective, my personal perspective is the first thing is acknowledgement. Acknowledgement that either I've kind of stuffed it up or that I'm now aware that I have an issue that I have to deal with. So I, I'm, and on the, in, the, in the recent past, I'm more upbeat just in terms of the acknowledgement and the changes that they are making. I think from a business perspective, if I put my pure business hat on, that is the positive. Then you say, no, how do I fix? By when? And what do I do? So those are the things that um, is really kind of getting my, my tone tone up it. And, and I must say, on a, on a personal note, um, I know one can say many things about, uh, about our president, but I think he's got an immense task ahead of him and an immense challenge mm. uh, to, turn, to, to, to turn the country around and get it 
to an economic state where we have you know, growth in terms of our gross domestic product. Um, so he's got all my support, uh, certainly, to, to make this thing and, and do what we have to do um, and draw on the resources that is available to kind of get this done because the, there's, there's talent out there mm. that can be tapped into. Uh, South Africa, I, I, I share your sentiment, and this is an amazing place to live. And we have so many resources, whether they're natural resources or people resources. We have so much going for us that that I believe we can be successful as a country, um, despite the last ten years of. Pillaging. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a strong word. Lee, the, the very interesting learning thing that 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 happens to you when you travel internationally, and and you've had the the privilege and the luxury, whatever you want to call it, uh, that I had, you develop a deep sense of confidence in the skill set as a South African, not to be underestimated, not to be downplayed in any sense and I wish sometimes I can teach people to believe more in themselves because once you do that as a South African and then as a community and the power and the diversity that comes from that by harnessing the, 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 the differences as opposed to saying well we're just different I, I, I travelled and, and you just see how capable we are because we have such a general perspective but we also have this unique ability to dive into the detail we lead on a lot of technology fronts as well so it's an amazing capability we've got but the issue is we've got to firstly appreciate it and then say well how do we use it um, so no, I, I really have a, a lot of confidence in what the capability of our people are hmm. so let's go back to your your personal story um so you you matriculated from Durban. My sense of people from Dur- my my both my parents are from Durban. My sense of people from Durban um, is they're very warm. I, I feel like they're the warmest people in in our country in many ways. Like the, I can almost feel a Durbanite versus someone else from somewhere else in the country. They're just, always just like happy to talk. Friendly, warm, kind of more relaxed, I suppose, mm. a bit as well. Mm. But the Capetonians are, are, are as well. Uh, you, you're making me think of a story. May I tell you? Go for it. Story I like stories. So I played competitive sport um, when I was slightly younger. I had to now stop uh, playing as competitive. I'm still extremely competitive and into the fitness game, etc. What sport? Were I you? played uh, squash. Okay. Um, so we, we play the tournaments. Uh, and then we travel the country. So you get all these different teams together. So it's the Captonians, it's the Gauteng, it's Northern Transvaal, the old Northern Transvaal. Uh, we're now Gauteng North. And then you get the Free Staters. And then you get uh, the guys from Natal. And then we have the Zimbabweans coming in. So they always flew in a, a team. So you play these tournaments. And then obviously you kind of sweat it out. And then you go and you relax. Boy, and I have to acknowledge what you what you're saying. The, the, what I, what I hated about the Banana Boys or the the, the Natal guys is they would play such a damn good game, then they relax. You know, they are so laid back and they kind of get, you know, they have a drink too much, you know, too too much, and you think I'm going to beat this guy tomorrow. And then they get on the court and they play such a damn good game. You know, I hated them for it, but they were so <laughs> flippant good in what they did. But but really. 
jovial people, um, you know, and relaxed, and and the mannerisms. I, I think we can we can learn a lot yeah. uh, a lot from him. Please don't ask me about my experience of the others, but okay, uh, that's slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then, so you went to go and study engineering yes. at yes. Uh, in Pretoria. Pretoria University, yeah. Uh, what kind of engineering? Chemical engineering. Okay. A good friend of mine's a chemical engineer. Yeah. The, um, how, what level of degree did you did you get? I finished up to master's okay. degree. And what was your? Where were you going with it? What was your vision for yourself? What was where, what was your trajectory? It's a it's a it's a difficult question because as one starts off, you you we find a lot of engineers believe that it's purely technical, and then because of what I've earlier mentioned earlier, the general nature that we've got in South Africa, it forces a lot of engineers to also later become management or move into management, and become non-technical, and then you find them moving into into different uh, spaces. Mm. So I was a typical engineer. I started off, I commissioned plants, I built plants, and therefore my my whole uh, vision, I suppose, and also my skill set was one of an ability to systematically construct and build things. And, and even when I look back now at my young age, uh, I, can, I can say there's a golden thread that runs through, through my career, be it as a technical engineer or as a uh, project manager or as a director of, of, of big uh, programs. You know, the thing is that I'm a builder. I like to build things, to put things together, to, to say how do we fix things that, that are, that are kind of broken. So in a roundabout way, I suppose I'm saying to you, I did not really know, you know, where I was in that window of between 25 and and 30, uh, but with stars in my eyes, and then I said, well, okay, let's try this. But if I have to look back now, I'll say, well, it's been a very interesting ride because of the uh, abilities that I, and the systematic teachings that you receive and learn and analytical skills as an engineer, it served me well combined with the natural talents of or gifts that we receive to say this is what I can and cannot do. Mm. Um, so, yep, I don't know if that, if that answers you. And, and you, you're at Sassel, right? Yes. I, no, I'm not with Sassel anymore. You were for them. Oh, yes, yes. we were at Sassel. So, so Sassel produce or um, use coal to produce oil, petrol. Yes. And, and related products. And chemicals, yeah. Do you now, in the state of the world we in now, have any sense of guilt or any sense of, um, I don't know what the word is, regret around the work you did for Sassel, but knowing where we are now? The, the, the straight answer is no. Um, I, I would look back at that career and say, wow, what an amazing career. And, but then I'll qualify it. Because as part of my career in Sassel, I was also responsible for developing a lot of the strategy that the group actually is executing. Now, to be able to do that, you do things which we call scenario-based planning. So you then literally, and I'm actually not joking, we brought in international people that at that point in time, we looked at the world globally to say what would happen or what are the requirements energy-wise for the next 25 to 50 years. So this was kind of 
uh, it was about 15 years ago when we did this. And then you get very, very interesting things because you, you, you use these techniques and analytics to say, well, what would happen and what will be happening with the world? Will I need, for instance, LNG, which is liquefied natural gas? How would um, renewables start developing? And what is the place for, for hydrocarbons? Um, and then you get a sense of how difficult it is for the world to just say, switch off on hydrocarbons. You just cannot do that because you'll just basically turn off the lights. So the challenge to me is not either or, but how we actually move and migrate into a new world of how we manage ourselves differently. But I have to say, no, I'm, I'm not, because it's taught me so much. Mm. And, and I think a lot of the drive and the passion that I've got now is to say, I understand that. But now we have to actually also start changing and live the change because a new world is to await, mm. is, awake, is awakening, which we kind of have mm. to embrace. So 15 years ago, you knew that we needed to shift towards renewables. And yes. right, right, and and the, and so you you would say that everybody in the in that sector would have known as well. They probably would have known if you look at the big um, like Shell. Oil, they would have yeah, known. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, you, the big oil majors, the, the, those people, uh, they they lead Sasol in terms of scenario planning and the way that they look at the world. So everybody is aware of it. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't be fooling ourselves if we say people don't know mm. what's coming at us. So I, I know you might be putting... Um, I, might, I might be asking you questions that you don't know, but do you, it, from your perspective, do you feel like the oil companies have managed this from my side as a pure consumer? Yeah. I feel like I feel like the oil companies, and it's judgmental, and I could be completely off the mark. But my sense is that they've, on one side, they've said, "Let's make as much money out of this technology as we can until we have to switch." Yeah, and haven't fully acknowledged the impact of what that technology does to our planet and our people, and um, and could have brought about change sooner. Even if I venture a, uh, an answer, it would it would be one which is a, a personal observation and insights or the way that I that I think about it. So the answer would be yes and no. Uh, it would be fair in what you're saying. I think it would also be unfair because of the world that we live in and the energy requirements that we've got. I joke you not, if you look at the magnitude of consumption of hydrocarbons, be it liquefied, be it just in the oil that we consume and distill it and do whatever we have to do with it, um, and then you start looking at the impact that renewables, and renewables you can now talk about wind, solar, sun, etc., all those things, has, and then the cost of that versus extracting the oil from the ground and, and, and using that. But if you look at the size of consumption, then you understand that even if a renewable were to grow at 20, 30, 40%, and I'm not exactly sure what the uh, uh, growth rate is at the moment, it takes literally 25 years to start, to start making a dent in the hydrocarbon consumption. So in, in a sense, yes, will they be protective? 
I don't know. But industry also runs. And, and the, the only thing I can say to people is you've got to start thinking, and I think they are, to say, well, we just cannot carry on with this way. And I, I, I believe if you look at the portfolios of these major or oil majors, you'll start seeing that renewables are starting to play a bigger, bigger, bigger role in this. And you're starting to see, look at the patterns and the structures that are emerging, that they're not oblivious to it. I mean, how many cars can you put on the road? I mean, the, the resources of oil are actually now finite. We're starting to see. So it's, it's a yes and a no, you know. And, and, but I think the awareness of, of people is, is certainly from a global point of view um, starting to emerge to say we have to do this slightly differently. But, and that's the, that's the downside, yes, there's a lot of vested interest in this. Uh, to to make it go down a certain traje- trajectory, uh, and to keep it on on that on that path. But the positive thing is, I, I'm I'm so happy that you're starting to see solar uh, grow and and the other renewables. But there's still a way to go. Mm. Okay, mm. Now, there's still a long way to go. Um, so. Um, you at Cecil for. The 20, 20, 26 years, yeah. 26 years. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique... It's such a unique perspective. That's why I'm asking you all these questions because I'm... I think I come from a very... Uh, I think a very liberal mindset and um, very. E- I find it very easy to like, attach blame onto... I have a natural distrust for those large corporations which, like the oil companies, are doing massive harm to the the planet. And, like like, for example, the smoke, the cigarette industry, they, excuse my use of language, bullshitted the public for many years around the harmful effects of what they were doing before they finally admitted, okay, smoking can kill you. And I feel like the same is the case with the the oil company. I I know I'm rehashing it a bit, but because there's so much money involved, like I feel like they had to have known sooner, even sooner than 15 years. Probably thirty years. They probably like they had to have known the impacts of what they're doing, but they carried on anyway. And we're now facing quite a critical point. And maybe we needed to be there as a species. Yes. Maybe we needed to get to this point so we can all wake up. Because I feel like we. I know myself. I'm waking up, and I feel like a lot of people around me are waking up. And maybe that's what we need here as a species: is to be brought to this place so we can build community and wake up in order to be able to find something better. Yeah, Lee, once again, so I understand where you come from mm. and also saying, but I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed, I'm cross and all those things because look where you've, where you've brought us. The, the question is, in, in, in front of whose door uh, do you put it? And certainly there's a lot of money involved. Um, uh, on, on the counter to it is to say, uh, they really have been aware of it. And, and, I mean, you do comprehensive life cycle analysis. And we used to call it product stewardship, in other words, cradle to grave. Um, but therein is also an issue, and that's where the new new way of thinking is, is coming coming about. So 
if, if I can also say, well, you know, how do you answer such a frustration other than acknowledging, I think globally we're at a point where we say something has to change and everybody is aware of it. And certainly some of the work that we, that I um, started experiencing or doing in Sassel has led me to the point now where I've uh, enrolled with MIT um, in terms of their Theory U, which is about this global awakening that's actually happening. And, but it, at, at its heart, it's about a system that it's, is at play and a system called the globe that is at play. And us living inside or on that system, well, both inside and on the system. Now, that once again also emanated from, from the work that we did when we did this, uh, the, the scenario work um, in Sassel. Because then you have to go really deep into what we call structural analysis of the systems that are at play and how do you intervene to change a system, uh, be it a technical system or be it a human system or be it a social divide or be it an ecological breakdown, which we're seeing at the moment, because we have a bit of a breakdown happening. I mean, it's major disruption ecologically that we're seeing across the globe. We're seeing social disruptions that are happening. We're seeing devastation in nature. So... I, if not for one moment, think people are not aware of it. The, the question I then have is to say, well, are they the people that have to change it or how do we start making a change on it? And that's really where I come from, to say, so I've been there, I've done that, I don't have regrets about it, but I now also want to make a change for the better you know, and help and even leave a legacy for the people that follow to say, but we've actually did something, we've done something differently. So I'm, I'm, if I'm rambling, please, please tell me. But the, the, the interesting thing that happens when you start looking at it as a system, so you've got hydrocarbons interplaying with, with renewables, interplaying with a lot of other things that are happening. But the people that is managing that is the human being. And, and that's what we call, but you have to change from within. You actually have to kind of stand back and look at the systems that we've created globally. And then you can look at a country, etc. and you say, well... What needs to change here? And I, I, it's hats off to, to the guys in MIT, the way that they are approaching it. Um, uh, and I don't know if you know the names, but it's Peter Senge was the, was the creator of systems thinking. It's the fifth uh, discipline book. And then uh, Otto Schammer has now followed on, on from them. But essentially, and I, I don't want to get lost in the technicals of it, but the, the, in the middle of this change that has to happen is you and me, and not necessarily a leader. Not necessarily the company, because change happens by people saying, but we want to make a change. We actually want to make a difference. So that's when I say it has to start from within side of you to say, how can I, with my technical capabilities and understanding of what I've learned throughout my career, now also start making a change and helping communities to actually affect a change? So it's, it's amazing work uh, that they are doing, and it's actually not only MIT, all the universities have clubbed together globally to say, well, how do we train people in the process so that they understand we have to, and I'm going into the theory a bit for now, but you have to release your beliefs that you've had up to now because if we keep on with the beliefs that we, that we are, have been living, look where it's brought us. Is it right or is it wrong? We can have long conversations about it. The question is, what do we do? Because, hmm. we, we, you know, we can talk for hours and hours and hours. And I'm, I'm kind of tired of the talking sometimes because we have to now do something about this. 
mean, if you look at the statistics, what happened, and you've heard this before, I mean, we're consuming the resources of the earth by June of every year. We're consuming these things. In America, they're consuming it eight times faster than they can actually replenish it. I mean, so we've got massive issues coming at us. So I, I just look at it and say, I'm not going to blame anybody. I'll ask them serious questions, but I'll say, so what are you doing about it? How are you going to go about to affect the change and create a community? I know we had a quick chat yesterday, and what really struck a chord, Ali, and, and if I can support in that in any way, it's you've got to create a community. Um, firstly, and, and they're, they're the hats off to MIT, they're trying to create a global community of what they call this global social consciousness that's becoming aware of all the problems that we've created and the destruction. And then we're starting to challenge the individual systems to say, but how do we affect um, agriculture? How do we affect or look at the wastage that we have actually uh, started generating in the world? How do we get rid of plastics? So it's very practical, but it's, it's a deep thing to say that can you as a human being actually, and they call it going through the eye of the needle, can you release, can you suspend, can you let go of the beliefs that you've held up to now to say, but this is not about black or white. This is actually not about African or being a United States citizen. This is about Earth that has to really... And by the way, I'm not a, I'm not a, a bunny hugger or whatever you want to call it. I'm an engineer that's practical to say, what do we do? How do we actually go about affecting some change on a real scale? Uh, but I do know it's not only about the technical solutions. It's about the people like you and me sitting in this room to say, I want to make a difference. The question is how. What I love about the MIT process is that they actually show you how and they teach you how. And then they say, go do, and then report back. Um, and then I'll stop. But, but uh, I mean, the, the one course they ran last year, you actually have in the number of, the, the numbers that I've heard, 75,000 people attending globally webinars where we sit and we look at these lectures and they teach us. And then the people go and they create these hubs. So I think it's amazing work that they're doing. So you're starting... And, I, and I, I'm saying a lot of stuff, but you're starting to see across the globe an awakening that's happening, which is incredibly um, exciting and also, I think, critical at this point in time for us as a human species to say, are we going to stay or are we going to kind of make ourselves extinct here? Okay. Does that, that's a long-winded answer. I'm going to throw the question back at you. Yes. So what are you doing? So I... I <laughs> Uh, so when I started my journey, uh, thanks for the for the question, uh, Lee, a very good one. Uh, I'm going to start at a place, and then I'm going to tell you about the incident that catalyst that, that really drove me to say, "Now you make you do something about it." So 1997, when I um, had to help set up the the, the, the strategy in Sassel, um, I mentioned this mentor earlier. Um, he started teaching me about what I call personal mastery. Um, and it's about mastering and understanding yourself and who you are and who you are not, what you're good at and what you're not good at. And there's no good or bad. We are all gifts. We receive gifts. The question is, don't work on the bad points, work on the good points and kind of harness the diversity. So amazing mentors I've had throughout my career, but it started in around about 1997, where this journey of my on my own personal mastery um, came to be. Um, so many things happened, and I, I'm not joking when I say for the past 20-odd years, I've been literally um, saying, well, 
you know, what is this personal journey? Now, it involves journaling on a daily basis, saying what happens. It helps teaching people and trying to understand what you're about. Um, so kind of it started in 1997, 1998. I had my, I had my stint there, then went into business, built plants, etc., etc. But this thing never left me. And then what I found is in, in my career, uh, the more I aged, the more people started knocking on my door and saying, kind of just talk to me a bit. You know, so I became a bit of a coach and a mentor and a guide for lack of better description. Um, and, and I found an interesting thing that said that people, even though you ask them what is their purpose, they find it incredibly difficult to answer. Because purpose to many people means many different things. So... In my journey from 1997 to now, I, as a line manager, because I've not been an HR or a psychologist or whatever, I've just tried to help people to say, just understand who you are. Because if you cannot master yourself or understand yourself, how the devil do you think you're going to actually help other people out there? The first thing is to be the master of self. So that's that's kind of where, where, where it started. And then um, in 2010, um, I'm also... A, a, a real fitness fanatic. I have to admit that. I'm a slave to, to the endorphins. Love it um, because healthy body, healthy mind also goes with that. So I created the company Endless Life Force. But the name Endless Life Force also sends to you, it's about something that's within us. And if we, if we unlock that amazing power within us and do the mastery of it, and when I, I'm moving my hands now, so Lee's kind of seeing me move my hands, it's saying you have to bring the mind and the body together and that's by the way eastern philosophy that we kind of and, and the, the sensing of how we actually go about it if you bring that together you unlock amazing power within people and the immense joy of seeing people unlock this within them that's a that's a personal mastery journey and and gratification beyond belief uh, just as as trying to help people uh, do that um, and the joy you get from that is amazing but nevertheless, I created the company in 2010, and Endless Life Force is about this fountain that bubbles within, uh, bubbles within all of us. So, finished my career. I ended off at, at Sussel in 2017, and I'm also a biker. I have to acknowledge that. been being a, a biker for 25 years, and I belong to a, to a biking group. So we go on a breakfast run. And one of the, my colleagues, in fact, that worked for Sassel, uh, we were sitting on th across the table, and uh, my wife and I had just come back from a trip abroad, and we literally swam through the, the islands of plastic. And kind of, I said, boy, as an engineer, this is tough for me to, when I dive down and go and look at mantas, I actually have to kind of separate the plastic before I can see the fish. And I'm... I'm Where really, was that? What that was, it was in Bali. It was in Bali. It is shocking, Lee. It is... Yeah, it's difficult to describe uh, what happened to me there personally. So that happened prior to this breakfast run with, with the bikers. So we're sitting at the table having a cup of coffee, and I'm t telling these biking mates of mine that I had this experience in Bali. So the, this other guy is an, is an old Mulwright. I don't know if you know Mulwright, but it's these technical guys that work electrically and mechanically, and they are incredibly competent guys, by the way. So he sits across the table to me, and he's a kind of, uh, I think, about six, seven, eight years my senior, so he's in his 60s now. And he says to me, Andres, so I'm sitting on this end of the table, and he's sitting on the other end of the table. He says, you know, it's, all of us talk about this. What are you going to do about it? Yes. And it hit me like a hammer between my head. And I said, what am I going to do about this? So your question, so what am I doing about this? I then... 
because I, yeah, I, I'm not sure if I can mention his name, but I mean, I have to give him credit for what he said to me. Um, and then uh, with the experience of Bali, I said, but I have to do something about it. I then um, went to, decided that I am really interested in the recycling. And it's not only about recycling, but changing the way we think about the business models in the world. So when you speak about an oil mage, I'm going to go into theory a bit. They teach engineers, or they taught engineers, by the way, to, to, design, linear, to, 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 to design linearly. How do you say that in English? Linearly. Sounds right. Okay, whatever. Okay. Linear. <laughs> Okay. Which basically means you get a you get a resource, you kind of convert it, you waste sixty percent or whatever the wastage, you get forty percent. The problem is the sixty or whatever odd percentage that we are wasting. So that's kind of how they how they teach people. And I then said, no, we have to think differently about this. So the one is that you have to actually eliminate the plastics or the current stuff out there because you can't wish it away. You've got to do something with it. And there you can lose pyrotechnics and a lot of stuff to, to kind of get rid of the plastic. And Singapore is a flippant good example of how they're going about this. A model to, to look at. How they, what are they doing? Just yeah, no, no, I don't want to go, I just want to finish too on. Too technical. Okay. Yeah, no, no, it's not, it's not. I'll show, I'll talk about it now, but I just want to finish my logic here. So the linear economy then changes to one where we call it now biomimicry. You must have heard the term, yeah, yeah, no which essentially means if you look at nature, nothing is wasted. Okay. So why can't we change our business models when we design new or even existing models we, we design in a circular fashion? Okay, so I said, that's fine in theory, but how do I affect that change? So I went to France, um, I got my training last year, and I'm now also a certified consultant to actually help with redesigning or rethinking your business model. Now, don't only think big, big business. Even in an office, even in this office of yours, yeah, you look at the business model of how you consume and you say, well, how will I do it differently? And then there's a board game you actually play. So you teach people in a playful manner of how you actually rethink your business models and how you actually are not man alone, but you actually have to join forces. So Leon Andres has to join forces to say, but in the interest of what we have created and the destruction we might be facing, you know, this is now inevitable. You know, whether I like you or not, let's kind of talk together about this. And that's the least portion that MIT helps you with. And you understand the dependency of how dependent we are on each other to actually kind of do something about this. So to back to, to where I am in terms of my train of thought. So it started 1997, started the company in 2010, this fountain of... Um, power inside of all of us, this endless life force. And then I sat across this table and the guy pointed at me and he said, what are you going to do? So I'm, I suppose I have a bit of a, I wouldn't say a mission, uh, but a real energy or burning flame inside of me to say, well, um, what do I leave? What's the legacy that I leave here? Um, because it's whatever we plant now, it's not about me. It's actually about the people that come after me. We have a very uh, nice expression in Afrikaans which says, uh, We are the custodians of earth for our children. And I don't know how you translate it in English. Um, and every little thing you can do, every small change you can make at this point in time is critical. Do I expect the big corporates to do it? Yes. But I'm not going to ask them only to do it. It's also about us doing it. So... 
back to Singapore. If you look at the Singapore model, they're using all of these things and they don't waste anything. So they then actually burn and then whatever is left is minimal. So I think there's a lot to be learned from, and I don't want to get into the technicals, but their model is an interesting and amazing one of how they're going about it. So I, I don't know if that answers I, you. I, I saw this video clip, uh, I think it was yesterday, about this village in Japan that has been zero waste for 20 years. Um, and they, as a community, they break everything up into, they've got, I think, 80 categories of yeah. different products and then they have uses for them and recycle them and reuse them in different ways. So, um, and apparently now there people around the world are coming there to see how they're doing it and study how they're doing it. So, so we, we have the solutions. We have. But, but, the, but the biggest issue, and as a technical person I can say to you, it's not about the technical issues. It's mm -hmm. about the behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's it, why it goes back to working on the yes. inside. The, the biggest issue is not the technical. There's many bridges to be crossed and technical things we have to solve. But it's about you and me saying, I have to think differently about this and really be mindful and aware of what I'm doing and how I'm consuming and how I, when I have a product, how I actually recycle it. But that's only one component, Lee. So when you look at circularity in its fundamental issue, and when I say you rethink your business model, uh, and you might have heard this before, but so if you think back many years, decades, uh, possibly... Before, we, before you were born, I, I experienced some of it. So I, we come from a world where things were built to last. Yes. Okay. We're now in a world that things are built to break. Manufactured obsolescence. That's it. That's the right technical word for it. Because, I mean, I, it's once used, throw it away. And more then, money in it. You're going to buy it again. Or you've got to buy another one in two years' time or whatever it is. True, but there's a fundamental flaw in the assumption we've made. We've assumed we have infinite resources to be able to do this, and it ain't true. Mm. I mean, even this, the, the sand is, running, uh, is now up to, to make cement. I mean, the, the, the world is facing a major issue that we actually don't have sand to build homes anymore. Really? Yes. I didn't even realise that. So, I mean, we, we're starting to see these things happen. Can you not use desert sand? I since, suppose. Since we're creating I, I, I more deserts. Yeah, we can create more deserts. But from, from, from that point of view, so if you look at the redesign of a business model, and, and you then say, well, how nature works, if you go to the, to the world back where we say it was built to last, the challenge to companies and us is to say, well, if you sell me something, and I use the term cradle to grave, it's now not cradle to grave, it's cradle to cradle. So that's in the, principle, in, the, in the conversation of circularity. Because if I give it to you, I have an accountability and a responsibility to receive it back, put it back into the loop, and reuse it, reuse it until it just cannot be reused anymore. And then I can break it down in fundamental components and apply it elsewhere. Because that's how nature works. Okay. Now, can you do that everywhere? You cannot. But that's how you fundamentally start thinking differently about your business model. So your car and you must, must have heard this before, is only used effectively 5% of the time. It stands kind of idling, nothing, latent, it's not used. So why do you buy a car? Why don't we completely change the model of how we think about transport? So those are two illustrations of how you fundamentally sit and think differently about um, business models. 
Um, so what I'm, what I'm trying to emphasize, it's not only about the waste products that we've got. We need the recycling and the technical solutions for that. But you also have to catch it at source now to kind of change fundamentally how people are thinking about it. Not using the plastic in the first place or using building your system so that it's, as you said, it continues. There's no wastage, like yeah. a zero wastage. Yeah, legal. Look, and and is, but and even because our... Our population's growing rapidly, which is another part of the, the issue. Even if we've got these, even if there were infinite systems, because we needed the systems that need to grow all the time because there's more and more people, surely we're still sitting with an issue? Yes. Um, the, the one thing I just want to, uh, and I'm stuck there a bit because I just want to uh, correct something that you've said. It's not a question of getting rid of plastic. I think the major, because we need thermoplastics per se, and thermoplastics is multi, multiple dimensions. The world has become such that we actually are dependent on it in multiple areas, and, it, and it's, it's amazing products. I mean, we really need it. The question is how we reapply it and reuse it so that we don't continuously use virgin material coming in and deplete all our resources. And those solutions are there, but the responsibility and accountability has to move from linear throughput as a to circularity. That's the one thing I just want to uh, correct in terms of your thinking. Now, just repeat your question. I'm, I just got stuck on mm, that question mm. of the... So I was saying that um, because the population is growing, oh, yes. even if we have these infinite circles, that the resource, the required resources are continuously growing. So are we still not having an issue? The, there's a... What comes to mind is the... So once again, as a as a statistician and engineer, you ask the question, so how much people, how many people can the globe sustain? So there's a very interesting clip on, on, on YouTube by a Dutch um, statistician. I'm not sure if he's a statistician, or but he, he works in statistics and, and did an analysis on population growth. So we can, and it, it's actually comforting to me when I saw this clip, because is it 16, 20 billion that we have to support? Because how do I build a system for an infinitely growing population? And he actually demonstrates that we'll eventually stabilize at about 11 billion on the globe. Now that's 5, 6 billion up from where we are now. It's a bit more. Well, it's 4. It's 4, four billion. I think we're about 7 billion now. But it's incredibly comfort, comforting to me because that means I've now got something that I can work with. So how do I set up my systems from a population growth point of view that we can cater for that commercially and also in the systems that we design? It's, it's a clip worthwhile watching. So how, does, how, how does he work out that that's where we... Is that because death rates and yes. birth rates and it, it will all stabilize? 100%. Okay. So if you look at what happens when you're actually in a poor country, you, you have an explosion of family size... Seven, etc. And as wealth increases, you're seeing people having less and less and less children. And even in Korea, South Korea now, they're kind of adopting dogs and they're not having children because they realize, well, how do I actually sustain this? Mm. So as wealth increases, people naturally, the size of the family, and all the statistics have actually shown that, that you're seeing the European population and all the wealthy populations, first worlds, kind of the, 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 the birth rate is just dramatically decreasing. And you're still seeing in Africa, though, that the birth rate is increasing. So 
and then he shows by very practical demonstration on, on, a, on a table with kind of glass bottles what happens because the two people that are the parent, the father and the mother, they're just trying to replace themselves. And you're seeing the size of the European population decreasing. And in Africa, because of the poverty, you start seeing just further bottles actually being added or size of family being added. But eventually it stabilizes just because of the, the birth rates and the death rates that, that we've got. The interesting thing that actually happens in that analysis is that you start seeing that even though it stabilizes at 11, the first world or the wealthy populations actually decreases consistently and the, the poverty-stricken countries, you start seeing they systematically just increasing. That being said, let's not go into that for now, but it gives me comfort that we have certainly a number that one can work with. And then how do you start designing the systems to work with that? The question of the poverty in Africa is another issue uh, because then how do you get the wealth up and also change the behaviour so that you actually then say, well, I can now start controlling this thing as well. And let's say, well, one day we can kind of get this thing to decrease a bit because how long, how long can the planet sustain what we're doing at the current rate? But the, the people in Africa are not the problem. It's the people in the wealthy countries who are consuming resources. As you said, in the, in the States, they're consuming resources eight times faster than anyone else. Yes. Cannot argue with you. Cannot argue with you. I don't have, a, I don't have an, any, mm. uh, any other answer for you to say, well, yes. Um, well, the other question is, how do you alleviate the situation in Africa? Mm. Can you? Uh, you know, we always say we want to. Can you? Uh, I don't have an answer for that yet. Uh, the the things that I've come across recently all speak to, once again, uh, a redesign of the financial system. So a, a, re, a new system. Because um, the, the, the wealthy countries, so take America as an example, or even Europe, they're built... On slavery, they wouldn't be there where they are today without the free labor that they got yes. through slavery. And that model, in although is slightly different, is still perpetuating. There's still cheap labor being manipulated and used in order for the wealthy countries to live the luxurious lifestyles that they live. If if the if the yeah. poor weren't being um, not manipulated is not the word, but um, uh, used. Yeah, whatever. used. Yeah, for yeah. lack of better description, yeah. use a. If they weren't being term. used, then then they wouldn't be able to be able to afford the new iPhone because it would be so much more expensive because the labour is more expensive. So the the whole system perpetuates that poverty cycle. Yes, but don't only look at the financial system. It's one of the things, so you have to ask a question on capitalism, and I'm a capitalist. Am I a socialist? No. I'm a pragmatist. To say, well, what do we do about this? Because somehow it's not working. If you look at three major divides that has actually happened, the one is the, what we call the ecological divide or disaster, if I can say that, that's kind of pending or looming. The second thing is what we call the um, social divide, and the social divide speaks to this disparity in, in wealth across the globe. Um, and and, and a, a shocking number is that eight billionaires in the world has as many wealth or as, I think, half of the population or 3.6 billion people 
on the globe. Eight people in the world has Edgemo's wealth as about four billion people in the world. And it's increasing. So you say, well, what do you do about this? And then the third thing is what we call the spiritual divide that is actually happening. And there, because of what's happening to us technologically, you're starting to see a massive increase in despair and suicides. So there's 800,000, no, 800,000 suicides per year happening across the globe. It's one every 40 seconds. Wow. Of a person killing themselves, just saying, I can't live on this place anymore. So you're seeing three major issues. And then if you break them down, you start seeing there's a financial system issue. There's a thing in nature that we have to kind of remedy. There's things on a, on a governmental level that has to be fixed. So there's multiple dimensions, and there's actually a matrix that is drawn to say, well, these are the areas that you focus on. So I've chosen to focus on circularity. And then you have regenerative economics or agriculture, which is a second lever that you can, that you can go for. So is, the, is this MIT yes. system framework that you're talking about looking at these yes. things? So you have great. You have people across the globe, these hubs, that are starting up that are saying, we, so Lee, you, you have a passion about the financial system. Fine. You lead in a hub and a set up a community that actually starts thinking, well, how do we change this? And you're not alone. You actually interact with the global communities because these people in Berlin and in Hamburg also thinking about this. And they're saying, well, how do we think about it there? So you're really starting to see communities across the globe to say, but, oh, it's not about being South African. It's not about being black or white. It's about not being an American. It's not about being a German. It's about, well, how do we fundamentally... Being human. Being human. There's a very interesting... And I don't want to digress from your question on the financials. But it's as if we're standing in front of the chasm at the moment. And the world has brought us to a certain place. And we're looking at this thing down there. And we want to get to the other side, which is the beautiful mountaintop, fresh air. The question is, do I get there? The interesting thing is, and that's, and I'm demonstrating this now, and the people won't be able to see it, obviously. But it's like the you. You have to go down into the valley, release all the things that we have been attached to hydrocarbons, the way that we think about global majors, and understand the person that has to go down there is you and me. Also those leaders, to get to that other side, because then you actually can start embracing and changing the way that we think. Now, back to the financial system. So, I'm not a proponent of anything. I'm saying, well, what is the pragmatic thing to do for us as, a human, as human beings to say, we have to think differently about this? Because the way that we've been thinking ain't serving the purpose anymore. Mm -mm. It ain't serving the purpose. So we really have to kind of get excited about it. So you can kind of lead a financial one, and I you know, can look at circularity, and you're seeing these things pop up. So the issue at hand in a local community, they then kind of frame it, they teach you the processes, and then you can say, well, okay, how do I now create my or start affecting the change in the space that I, that I live so you've chosen circularity as your focus point. Yes. And you're connecting with other people who are feeling the same passion around it, yes. around the globe. And you, have you set up a hub here? Are you going to set up a hub here? What's your... Yes. If I, if I may go there, so my visit to Cape Town specifically now is to, make, to touch base and connect with the people in uh, the Western Cape on circularity. There's a couple of companies out here which um, I'm visiting tomorrow 
both on circularity as the principle of redesigning business models and then also on the second lever, which is uh, regenerative um, uh, agriculture. Okay, so those are two, the two levers that we've got there. Um, so uh, I, then th that's the one thing. The other thing is I've also joined the African Circularity Circular Network. I think that's what they, what they call themselves. I need to still make contact with them. But the person I'm meeting tomorrow is actually part of that, of that network. So my hope and dream is that we can from there then say, well, how do we in South Africa, back to your question as a South African, I'm here because I want to be, kind of look at South Africa and say, what can we do here? Not that I didn't try. Um, so the, I think there's two hubs in South Africa, one in Oatswaran and one which I'm not sure if it's running out of Port Elizabeth. Um, and then I saw one or two fragments in, in, in Pretoria. Tried to make contact with them, couldn't uh, get it set up. So my, my reason why I'm yeah this weekend is to say I need to kind of set up and see can we, can we not... Uh, from an industry point of view and also from a coordination point of view, see if we cannot get something going. And I'm kind of doing this because I get really, you know, time for talk is past. We have to actually start doing, doing, doing something about it. So, pr so practically speaking, what is your wish? Are you wanting to go into corporates and go, I'm here to serve you and help you redesign your business so that it's yes. a circular... So that's what we do. So what, that's my. You know, I've already made co contact with the corporates, um, two major corporates in South Africa. Uh, first invite received for end of February, um, so that we can then start playing this game. And I obviously hope that I have, a, I have another dream. Is the one is I cannot be a one man show. Um, now you can say this is not a very productive or financially rewarding business model, but I have a dream in my heart that we can have, teach people to follow the process and therefore unlock. But that's the legacy. That you say, so I can teach you the process and show other people so that they can start becoming the catalyst to, to affect some of these things. And it's not only about the big corporates. Um, so one is one-man show, but we need, we, this is a numbers game as well. Mm. We need people to come on board. So and am I being a bit selfish? So the, the community and spreading the word, I think, is, is a critical uh, first step that, that we have to take. Does that answer you? Mm. So I'm certainly mm. personally going into corporates, but that's not enough. Mm. When I spoke to the co-founder of the Circular Vision that I'm seeing tomorrow, she said, uh, she asked me from where, from where I am. I said, I'm from Centurion, and um, I wanted to check in with her quickly, and I spoke about the, the interview. She said, this issue is so big, we just have to hold hands. Uh, from South Africa's point of view, uh, we have to hold hands. If you look at the map... Of, of the hubs across the globe. We just are kind of not featuring there at the moment. And I want to go back to what I said in the beginning. So my travels have taught me we really can believe in ourselves. We are so flippant capable. But we have to kind of say, well, how do we do it? And not just be busy about for the sake of being busy, but understand that if we look at ourselves as a species... Uh, how long will we be able and ask the question how long will we be able to sustain what we are doing mm. at the moment mm. okay. something I've read uh, been reading recently is around uh, I think a, a lot of I know a lot of corporates are guilty of this and probably a lot of some people as well of approaching the, the, the subject of changing of 
whatever it is, whatever kind of change, here we're talking about environmental change. South Africa, I think social change is also part of it. Yes. Out of a sense of obligation. Yeah. Whereas, so what I've been reading, it's, it talks about getting in touch with oneself. Yes. In order to be able to connect with oneself, in order to be able to connect with other people and connect with our planet that we live on and realize that that we are part of it and we are part of an ecosystem. We're not separate from it. And so coming from a place of, of if I damage something, whether it's a person or the planet, I'm damaging myself because I'm part of it. Coming from that place rather than a, I have to because I'm obligated. Yes. It, 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 there's a different motivation and a different energy around it. And, um, yeah, I, I'm finally I'm connected very deeply with that. You know, I, I, it's personally driving my energy quite strongly. I concur or passionately agree. The eye of the needle that I spoke about earlier. So if you look at the principle of how you start affecting the change and understanding that you are the change. It's a combination of philosophies that that is at play. And there's no right or wrong. If you look at Eastern philosophy, it's about thinking, understanding, observing, releasing, understanding that you're part of a bigger system, that there's things beyond mind that is at play here. Whatever you want to believe is beyond mind. But there's bigger things. So you actually have to systematically start releasing yourself from who you are and understanding. So when we even do some of what I call dynamic mind practice, you sit with your feet on the ground because you're connecting to Mother Earth. You actually sometimes hold the hand of another person to say, but I'm part of this other person. There's a system at play here. So you systematically have to release. The difficulty is at the right at the bottom, is if you as a human being can release and understand that you are part of this bigger system. And then once you've done that, and we find that many people can't pass through it, and many corporates can't pass through it, because it's easy to talk, easy to say, I'm going to, but then the action has to come. So the second side of the equation is to say, Western philosophy, to say, now I build, now I do, now I get a prototype out there. How do I do? But it's mindful about what you do. It's not action for the sake of action. It's about saying, I'm going to work on the financial system. What about the financial system? Because I've now gone through the thinking of that I have to change something and I understand that Andres or Lee or the person that's having this conversation has to be mindful, has to be open-minded as opposed to closed-minded. Because closed-mindedness creates aggression, it creates creates violence, creates a hell of a lot of other stuff that comes with it. And that's behind the, the whole process that actually happens as to us as human beings. So, Lee, um, spot on. Um, so the work that you are reading and the, and the sense that you are feeling, you, you are not alone out there. Uh, that's the one thing I can say to you. And, in fact, there's a community of people and a global awareness that is starting on this that is, is giving me real hope for the future. But we have to act. We can't just be talking about this um, anymore. Mindful acting. Not mindless, but mindful. What is it that we want to do? How and where in the system do I break the cycle? And that's about being smart, but understanding the system that is at, at play. That's when you observe, 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 and then we call it you release yourself from who you are. It's fine. I've got some skills, you've got some skills. But how do we harness the two, even with... 
can't remember his name. Ashwin. Ashwin. He's got something that he's got to bring because there's no right or wrong here. But it's about us as human beings to say, well, how do we think differently about the future that we want to create for ourselves? Together. Together, mm. yes. Mm. I think that's another big theme that's coming up for me is community. And, yes. and it's something we've lost in, 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 in Western society. We close ourselves in our homes. We've got high walls. We don't connect with community in the way we did. Uh, religion used to form a large part of what that what that was, and even and that's starting to fall away. And people are much more separate from well, from each other. Lee, I cannot support you a million times. I'll support you ten million times. Technology, as great as it is, is also making the human being obsolete. You have artificial intelligence. You have the cell phone. I mean, people don't even talk to each other. But change comes when communities start acting together and start understanding that it's not about a cell phone. It's not about the technology only, but as human beings, and that's where revolutions start. And I'm saying a revolution, and I use my word carefully, that the way that we think about, or we, the way we think about the future, because we are facing a bit of a crisis at the moment. And, and, and I want to use, I suppose it's close to my heart, you have to release the stuff inside of you here because mm-hmm. therein is the power. But also connect with the, the, the togetherness that you've mentioned. That's the power. So do you feel a, re- a revolution is, is needed here? There's no doubt about it. We are already facing it, but we are not seeing it. We're not mindful of what is happening so one of the teachings, and I and I'm using philosophy a bit at the moment. It teaches you, so to, to kind of observe what you do as Andres, how you act, how you interplay with the system, but it forces you to get above yourself and say, so am I perpetuating the system, or how do I make a change so that I can actually be part of the change? But you have to be kind of observing yourself. So you turn the lens on yourself to kind of say, well, how do we how do we go about this differently? Because certainly if I do it individually, I'm not going to be do it. And I can use the technology even because it's isolating me. It's doing fundamentally different things to the human species. But therein comes the collective thinking. And it's actually called co-creation because then we start saying, how do we co-create something here differently? radically different and we create a bit of and I don't mean revolution in a bad sense I mean it in the most positive sense to say damn it let's see a new system and way that we treat the waste or whatever it sounds crazy but even circularity it's in its infancy and that in itself might be a revolution in the way that we think about uh, the future if you part of the work to say well should I go into circularity is, is to scenario planning 101 so what's coming at us in the future? What are the top careers that is really out there? So there's 20 interesting careers that is coming um, at us. Certainly artificial intelligence features right on the top. And the way the, the world of the, the robot, whatever we want to call it. And you know what Bill Gates says about, uh, about artificial intelligence that, and, and Stephen Hawking, that eventually will become redundant. But so that's, that's artificial intelligence. But certainly water broker. I mean, water is a problem in the world. And the second thing is the, um, the way that we think about our business models. Circular 
economy, the, the infinite resources that we've got, which we just cannot be exploiting the way that we are exploiting them anymore. Or the finite resources that we've got. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, correct. Um, you cannot infinitely exploit the finite resources. Mm. Well, well picked up. I've been talking too much. <laughs> I apologise for that. Okay. <laughs> I apologise for that. Okay. Lee. So, so I can feel your passion for this, and I, and, and I think we're on the same page with a lot of things. Um, for the people listening to this, if you had to ask them, ask of them one thing, what would that be? May I ask two questions to them? There's two fundamental questions. What is the world that is about, in your world, what is the world that is about to die? The second question is, if you pause and reflect and get quiet, what is the world that is about to awaken? Stand back. What is the world that has to change or is about to die? What is the world that is about to emerge? What is that world? And there's many dimensions to it. But those are the two questions I'd ask them. Those are powerful questions. Um, we could go on and on and I know, on. I know, I know. I think it's a good place to leave, leave the conversation for today. Um, thank you so much for your time I, I know you rushed to get here uh, I re really appreciate having you in and this will not be our last is there anything else you'd like to say before we no uh, other than thank you um, uh, from my heart and if I whoever listens to this broadcast please believe in the power that is within you have to get quiet. You have to reflect. And you'll experience a sense of immense connection across the globe and to humankind. Now, it sounds kind of this way or that way, but you actually have to experience it. Um, and then you'll see, it's amazing, the, the power that comes forth and the energy that it creates within yourself. And by the way, it's about the dream that is placed in all of us because all of us have a dream and we sometimes forget our dream but that's another conversation which is about this thing inside of us that we kind of suppress release it you'll be amazed what can happen we end off there awesome okay thank you so much thanks so much for listening follow us on our website creativec.co.za forward slash seedpod iTunes, Spotify, and most podcast apps. Please rate and share the podcast. You've been listening to SeedPod, a podcast dedicated to entrepreneurship, sustainability, and design. SeedPod is hosted by me, Lee Rail. If you want to sponsor this podcast or support us in any way, please feel free to contact me personally at lee at creativeseed.co.za.